Um, okay. Okay, I'm going to read the first stanza of the poem in Polish. And it remains to me one of the single greatest achievements in translation that I've ever read. Tyle naraz świata ze wszystkich stron świata. So much world all at once. How it rustles and bustles. Moraines and mores and morasses and muscles. The flame, the flamingo, the flounder, the feather. How to line them all up. How to put them together. So I'm just going to read the very first thing that I wrote. When it's a tornado watch, they don't do it. But when it's a tornado warning, the girls go and get inside the pantry, where they squeeze in among the cans and powders and cardboard boxes and wait until one of their parents says they can come out. Had I known that this was going to turn out to be a memoir, I think I would have written it really differently. I'm Jennifer Croft. I'm the author of Homesick, an illustrated memoir coming out with Unnamed Press this fall, as well as the translator from Polish of Olga Tokarczuk's novel Flights, a couple of other things. I'm currently translating Olga Tokarczuk's latest novel, The Books of Jacob, which is a thousand-page historical epic about Jacob Frank. And I've also translated some from Spanish and a little bit from Ukrainian. My earliest memory of another language might have been Spanish. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And if there was another language besides English present, it was generally Spanish with a little bit of Cherokee as well. But my family was monolingual and I grew up speaking only English. So it wasn't really until I was about 13 years old that I discovered Russian as my first language that I really studied um, and that I discovered kind of on my own from watching television. My sister and I watched religiously the Lillehammer Winter Olympics and we were obsessed with skaters from the former Soviet Union. We just thought they were so beautiful and fantasized about becoming ice skaters ourselves, which was unlikely, of course, in Oklahoma. But I did start studying Russian then, and my sister started studying a little bit of Ukrainian. So my parents were a little bit confused by the sudden enthusiasm for Russian specifically, but my father was a professor of cultural geography, and he was very encouraging of any kind of independent research that we or I wanted to do. That's also just how he has always worked. He has a very independent personality and is very good at kind of discovering new things and places. And And he arranged for a student of his to teach my sister and me, once a week for, I think he taught me for one hour. Before that, I spent a year or so just studying Russian textbooks that I got from the public library. But of course, as anyone who has studied a language knows, it's impossible to learn with just a textbook. I did what I could with that, and I got quite a bit of vocabulary, but to put it together, I really needed practice. So I had this teacher for a year or so, and then I studied Russian when I was in high school, where I was for just two years. And then I enrolled in college early, precisely because they did not offer any more Russian classes at my high school. Um, and I majored in Russian. So my sister and I had been homeschooled for a couple of years because of some health problems that my sister was experiencing. And I didn't have a lot to do at the time. I we had a very free schedule and I needed something to be obsessed with. And I was kind of becoming an adult, although I didn't yet know it. Um, I was starting to feel a little bit readier for the world, although, again, I wasn't really aware of that. But this was kind of my my opening and it remained 
something that I could safely do in my room by myself, but also it had this perspective meaning in my future for something very, very different. I think that the grammar of Slavic languages, as crazy as this sounds, really suits me as a person. There's something really exciting to me about order and logic, and they have that in spades in a way that English doesn't anymore. Um, the grammar of English just kind of eroded over the years in a way that Polish in particular didn't see happen. Russian did a little bit more, but of course at the time I couldn't have known that. To me it seemed very robust and very complete. One of the things that I especially love about the Slavic languages is cases. So if anyone has studied Latin, they will recognize that it's basically declining a noun as you would conjugate a verb. So in the same way that I say, but she says, and that extra S at the end of the word tells you something about, about the nature of the action, who's performing the action. In the same way, in Polish, if I say, Jenny eats a sandwich, or a sandwich eats Jenny, a Polish person actually understands that the sandwich is what is being eaten in either case because of the ending. So it just kind of, it's orderly, but it also frees things up in a really great way and gives a lot of power to poetry, for instance, because you can emphasize a word by putting it at the beginning of a sentence or at the end of a sentence in a way that you just can't do in English because that would change the meaning. Um, so that's one thing that I, I just really love. You can always tell what's happening to each word based on its ending. So I started translating a little bit while I was in college. It's not something that I ever thought of doing as a job. In truth, I didn't really give that much thought to jobs when I was a teenager. So I majored in Russian and English and minored in creative writing. And I was trying to figure out a way to put those things together. Obviously, in hindsight, the very logical and possibly only choice is translation. But at the time, there was just one Russian professor at the University of Tulsa where I went. And... Um, she assigned a translation to do in class. And I just, I was really interested in it. I mean, my initial approach to translation has very little in common with what my approach has evolved to be. I wouldn't say that I was good at it. And I wouldn't say that I'm good at languages. A lot of people ask me that because I've spent a lot of time working with other languages, so they kind of assume that I must be. I don't know exactly what that even would mean. I mean, as I just said, I've spent a lot of time on them, so I think that's the secret is just practice. Um, and the same thing was true with translation. So I started and I was intrigued. I don't remember what she had us translate, but it wasn't anything particularly interesting. It was just kind of a new challenge that... Maybe I sensed I could get better at. I don't know. In any case, my family, we're from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that's why I went to school there. But while I was in college, they moved to Iowa. And I was very young when that happened. I was 15 since I started college early. So in some ways, I wanted to kind of follow them. In other ways, there were only a couple of programs in the United States for literary translation and Iowa had a great MFA. So I just applied for that. That was sort of my only plan for what to do after college. Unfortunately, it worked out. And then I studied Polish when I got to the University of Iowa, ended up with a Fulbright after, after my MFA, and the rest is kind of history. The literary translation program at the University of Iowa has changed a lot as well in the last few years. So I'll actually be 
a translator in residence there in the fall, which I'm really excited about. It's now a very dynamic, large program under the direction of Aron Aji, who translates from Turkish to English. And it's just an incredibly talented and nurturing teacher and organizer of things. So I've just been astonished to see how the program has grown since he took over. When I was there, it was that kind of an awkward moment. Daniel Weisbord, who started it, had just recently left. So it was actually only me and one other student in the program. It was never quite clear what we were supposed to be doing. <laughs> And the other crazy thing was that I was supposed to do Russian translation, obviously, and had all of that arranged, had my advisor, etc. But something happened in the Slavic department during the summer before I started. And suddenly half the department left. Um, my advisor took a last minute grant to go to Russia for the year. And everybody else took early retirement or, or something. My experience thus far is that language departments are fairly unstable at <laughs> institutions of higher education, especially Slavic departments. But at the time, I didn't know that, and I didn't really know what to do. I mean, this was just a few weeks before I began, and as I said, I didn't really have a plan B. So the only Slavic language they were offering that I could take was Polish, and I actually couldn't have found Poland on a map then, although my father would be horrified to hear me say that, being a geographer, but I did not know anything about Poland. However, my professor was as interested in grammar as I was, so it was a perfect match, and he had actually never been to Poland himself, so he had learned Polish from his wife, but he is Jewish, and as a kind of ethical stance, he doesn't want to go to Poland, but his Polish is perfect, and he was a great teacher for me, and that's what happened. And I also studied a little bit of French and Italian while I was there. That kind of was when I started to expand my purview. Um, and, you know, Polish and Russian are similar. They're not that similar that Polish people and Russian people can understand each other if they talk in their own languages. But they're similar enough that I found it hard to keep them straight. And the Polish ended up, because I needed it, especially, of course, when I moved to Poland um, after two years. So in 2003, I moved to Warsaw. I just kind of mentally couldn't afford to, to be mixing up my Polish words with my Russian words. And pretty quickly, I lost the Russian. I also went to Russia and did not like it. Um, as I <laughs> had thought I would. So I think that I quickly came to appreciate the literary scene in Poland and it just, everything kind of, it was a perfect storm for for no more Russian and for more Polish. It is such a fluke that I ended up studying Polish and going to Poland, you know, in a way... It was also, of course, a fluke that I started studying Russian. I have no original connection to any culture other than Oklahoma culture. But, of course, the way we view these coincidences and happenstances also depends on our, our later relationship with the thing. So I feel that this was kind of an intellectual decision. Ultimately, Polish for me was... It was offered to me through a series of accidents, but then I chose to pursue it because it fulfilled me intellectually in a way that I needed at the time. And I also, I needed to travel and Poland was a really good solution for me as Russia was not. Then through more coincidences, I ended up moving to Argentina. And that the transition was actually via Polish because of a, of a writer I was considering writing my, dissert, my PhD dissertation about, Witold Gombrowicz, who lived in Buenos Aires for 23 years. And I went 
just for two weeks to Buenos Aires with no Spanish other than when I was a child I learned how to count to ten. fell in love with the place. I had no real reason or motivation for that other than a kind of emotional response. So both Polish and Spanish are completely coincidental, and yet my relationship to the places and to the literatures is completely different. And so I probably view how they came into my life also in very different ways. So Argentina almost feels like fate, whereas Polish... I feel like I had more agency and also I spend less time in Poland and may have a diminishing relationship with Polish. So maybe I need at least the illusion of agency in order to, in order to make that happen. So after I lived in Poland for two years, I went to Northwestern University in Chicago. I went there in order to study with Claire Kavanaugh, who is one of my favorite translators. She translated uh, Wisława Szymborska really brilliantly. Um, of course, Szymborska won the Nobel Prize. And um, I had heard Claire talk at the University of Iowa about her translation strategy, and she read a beautiful poem by Szymborska called Birthday. And it remains to me one of the single greatest achievements in translation that I've ever read or heard. I guess I heard it first. It is a really wonderful poem to read out loud. Okay. So I'll, should I read the English, the whole English? And it's actually hard to read in English, too. <laughs> I'll do my best. Okay, I'm going to read the first stanza of the poem in Polish. The title is Urodziny. Tyle naraz świata ze wszystkich stron świata. Moreny, mureny, morza i zorze, i ogień, i ogon, i orzeł, i orzech. Jak ja to ustawię, gdzie ja to położę? This is the poem Birthday by Wisława Szymborska, translated from Polish by Claire Kavanaugh and Stanisław Barenczak. So much world all at once, how it rustles and bustles. Moraines and mores and morasses and mussels. The flame, the flamingo, the flounder, the feather. How to line them all up, how to put them together. All the thickets and crickets and creepers and creeks, the beaches and leeches alone could take weeks. Chinchillas, gorillas, and sarsaparillas. Thanks so much, but all this excess of kindness could kill us. Where's the jar for this burgeoning burdock, brook's babble, rook's squabble, snake's squiggle, abundance and trouble? How to plug up the gold mines and pin down the fox? How to cope with the lynx, bubble lynx, streptococcus? Take dioxide. A lightweight but mighty in deeds. What about octopodes? What about centipedes? I could look into prices but don't have the nerve. These are products I just can't afford, don't deserve. Isn't sunset a little too much for two eyes that, who knows, may not open to see the sun rise? I am just passing through. It's a five-minute stop. I won't catch what is distant. What's too close, I'll mix up. While trying to plumb with the voids in our senses, I'm bound to pass by all these poppies and pansies. What a loss when you think how much effort was spent perfecting this petal, this pistol, this scent, for the one-time appearance which is all there allowed, so aloofly precise and so fragilely proud. The reason that I think this is a special achievement in translation is that it's a great example of how to preserve the spirit of a work without translating even remotely literally. So point of this poem is this kind of explosion of vitality in life, this almost heartbreaking vitality. And, you know, it's sheer abundance. And it has to sound like that. It has to sound like it's overflowing. It has to sound really fun. And then be, you have to be able to kind of rein it in, especially at the end, and make it poignant. And had they tried to keep the animals and the plants and so forth, they would have lost everything that mattered about the poem. And I just love this creating a translation almost from scratch in the target language, using as inspiration the original and just kind of working in this very creative style. 
So the way that I came to Olga Tokarczuk was through her collection of short stories, which I discovered at the University of Iowa. I was looking in 2002, 2003 for something to translate as my master's thesis. That was what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to do a book-length translation with a critical introduction. And I had always been most interested in contemporary women writers. That was what I always focused on in college and just kind of what resonated with me the most. So that was kind of how I set the limits for my search for my master's thesis. And I then I just went to the library and browsed what they had. And they had this collection, which was published just in 2001, called Playing Many Drums by Olga Tokarczuk. And I started reading it and I just loved it. But I also found out pretty quickly that some of those stories were already being translated or had already been published by a wonderful translator named Antonia Lloyd-Jones, who's kind of like the translator from Polish to English of all kinds of literature. So I tracked down Antonia. I don't remember how, but I found her email address. I may have found her through one of the publications. I know Words Without Borders published her very early. And I wrote to Antonia and I just asked her, I said, I'm kind of an inspiring translator and I'm just wondering, I really love this author. I'm wondering if you're planning on translating everything because I see she has these other books. And Antonia wrote back and was so lovely and generous and amazing and said that there was more than enough for both of us to be translating her. So I then worked on some other women, um, Hanna Kral, who writes reportage, which is a great genre for Polish literature. She was my master's thesis and I had other people that I was looking at, but I kept coming back to Olga and um, I went to hear her read in Poland, in Warsaw, I think. And I eventually met her again through Antonia. She put us in touch. And this was actually right when Flights came out in Polish. So the book is called something else in Polish. It's called Biguni, which is actually the name of a 19th century Eastern Orthodox sect that believes that one must remain in constant motion if one is to avoid the devil. If you're a native speaker of a Slavic language, you can see or hear the root for to run in this word, biguni, but it's not the word for like a jogger or a runner. Some people who were doing publicity for the book um, initially suggested runners. And I always kind of hated that title because it sounds so boring in English and it's really not representative at all of the mysteriousness of this novel, which the Polish title is. So I eventually came up with flights for a number of different reasons. But at the time in 2007, when Biguni was published in Poland, it very quickly won Poland's highest literary honor, both the critics' part of that and the reader's part, which I love that Olga does that. Um, I think that's a really special writer that appeals equally to critics and readers. Um, and I loved the book. I loved all of Olga's work, but this was something really new for her and really adventurous. She's always adventurous, but this just felt, I don't know, somehow very brave and very exciting to me. It also happened to kind of coincide with doing my PhD and feeling more experimental myself. And I met Olga and her partner, Kragos, in Krakow that summer, and we agreed that I would be the translator. And then nothing happened for 10 years, um, which is to say that I was doing a lot behind the scenes, but nothing was happening. So I was translating excerpts. The book Flights is composed of a number of self-contained short stories and anecdotes and meditations on travel and the body and some longer, almost novella-length stories that are maybe broken up by 
by these other kinds of reflections. So it's what Olga is calling a constellation novel, which means that it's up to the reader to connect the pieces however she likes, which is something that I think is really, it feels kind of new and it is both ambitious and fun, which is again how Olga appeals to both critics and, and readers. Um, and I, I really love that about her. So I was able to take some of these self-contained stories and publish them in magazines and I also applied for a National Endowment for the Arts grant to do the translation. And if I hadn't gotten that, I don't think that the book ever would have been completed in English um, by me at any rate. That came at a really crucial time when I had finished my PhD and I kind of needed to be making money and I literally got that call as I had my pen poised over the contract of this awful book of literary criticism that I desperately didn't want to translate. And just at that moment, the National Endowment for the Arts called and said I had gotten this grant to translate flights, and I tore up the contract. Here's the beginning of the longer short story called Flights. Over the world at night, hell rises. The first thing that happens is it disfigures space. It makes everything more cramped and more massive and unscalable. Details disappear and objects lose their features, becoming squat and indistinct. How strange that by day they may be spoken of as beautiful or useful. Now they look like shapeless bodies, hard to guess what they'd be for. Everything is hypothetical in hell. All that daytime heterogeneity of form, the presence of colors, shades, reveals itself to be utterly in vain. What purpose could possibly be served by beige upholstery, by floral wallpaper, by tassels? What difference does green make to a dress slung over the back of a chair? It's difficult to understand the covetous gaze that fell upon it as it clung to its hanger in the shop window. There are no buttons or hooks or clasps now. Fingers in the dark find only vague bulges, rough patches, lumps of hard matter. The next thing hell does is drag you out of sleep. You can kick and scream. Hell is implacable. Sometimes it provides disturbing images, frightening or mocking. A decapitated head, a beloved body covered in blood, human bones and ashes. Yes, yes, hell likes to shock. But more often than not, it awakes without standing on ceremony. Your eyes open onto darkness, launching a stream of consciousness. Your gaze, aimed at nothing, is its advance guard. The nocturnal brain is a Penelope unraveling the cloth of meaning diligently woven during the day. Sometimes it's a single thread, sometimes more. Complex designs break down into prime factors, warp and weft. Weft falls by the wayside, and only straight parallel lines remain. The barcode of the world. Then you realize... Night gives the world back its natural, original appearance, without sugarcoating it. Day is a flight of fancy, light a slight exception, an oversight, a disruption of the order. The world, in fact, is dark, almost black, motionless and cold. Here's one example of something that is very different in tone. It's a shorter meditation called The Tongue is the Strongest Muscle. There are countries out there where people speak English, but not like us. We have our own languages hidden in our carry-on luggage, in our cosmetics bags, only ever using English when we travel, and then only in foreign countries to foreign people. 
It's hard to imagine, but English is their real language, oftentimes their only language. They don't have anything to fall back on or to turn to in moments of doubt. How lost they must feel in the world where all instructions, all the lyrics of all the stupidest possible songs, all the menus, all the excruciating pamphlets and brochures, even the buttons and the elevator are in their private language. They may be understood by anyone at any moment whenever they open their mouths. They must have to write things down in special codes. Wherever they are, people have unlimited access to them. They are accessible to everyone and everything. I heard there are plans in the works to get them some little language of their own, one of those dead ones no one else is using anyway, just so that for once they can have something just for themselves. So I think those two kind of give a sense of the range of Olga's work in flights. I actually found it easy to translate, by which I mean a couple of things. One is that I had a kind of instant identification with Olga when I first met her, rather when I first came across her work. And what happens when I start translating her is just that I feel myself kind of clicking. I get in sync with her pretty quickly. And now I've been working on her for a long time, for like 15 years. And I mean, translation is such a strange thing because it's so intimate the translator has such an intimate knowledge of the writer and the writer may or may not have any knowledge of the translator. In that sense, it's kind of like a therapist-patient relationship. Um, and actually, I've heard from a number of writer friends that the questions that they receive from their translators are sometimes verging on therapists' questions. They're kind of being psychoanalyzed by their translators who are trying to flesh out thoughts or sentences that feel incomplete. So. I feel that I know Olga really well to the point that when she published her most recent collection of short stories, which was last summer, they're so great. The stories are so brilliant and so exciting. And at the same time, I almost felt like I could predict them. I felt as I was reading that I knew what the next sentence was going to be. And um, that's a very strange feeling to have. I'm finding it important to kind of remind myself that some of that, maybe most of that is just an illusion that I have. So I don't, I want to make sure that I'm still being really mindful of what she's actually saying on the page. So right now I'm translating her most recent novel, The Books of Jacob, which was published in 2014 in Poland, also won um, the Critics' Prize and the Readers' Prize for this um, highest literary award in Poland called the Nike. And it's a thousand-page historical epic about a real figure named Jacob Frank, who was the leader of a Jewish heretical sect in the 18th century. And it's proving to be much more of a challenge than Flights was for me. So in a way, Flights perectly suited my own flightiness. Um, it was really fun to be in a different place and in a different time period and in a different tone. I translated the vast majority of this book in Buenos Aires, where I was living for seven years. And somehow this just felt really right. I would, you know, wake up in the morning and go out and hear parrots on my balcony. And then I would come back and I would do a page in the Netherlands in the 18th century, and then I would do a page in Poland now, and it just felt really good. The Books of Jacob is this kind of relentless amassing of detail as a way of kind of explaining this cult leader, which is exactly the only way that you can explain a cult leader. So Olga does a wonderful job of collecting all of these different voices from the people who surrounded him. And he was a very controversial man. Some people really loathed him, but most people seem to have found him incredibly charismatic. And charisma is a really hard thing to transmit in a novel. So I love that she does this kind of gradual build to this whole series of climactic events. But it's 
it's harder to translate. And part of that has to do, of course, with the period and the necessary specificity of things like the foods that they were eating and the ways that they were prepared and their many costumes. Olga's very interested in costume in stitching and fabrics and she uses fabric and weaving as metaphors for writing but she also is just kind of interested in those tactile elements especially of women's lives she always also focuses more on the feminine side of things so it is fascinating but very slow going to translate this book I have the incredible good fortune to be doing this translation at the Coleman Center at the New York Public Library, which offers me the time that I need by means of a stipend and also the resources that I need. So right now I'm working on the first draft of the translation. And as soon as that's finished, what I want to do is go through and stylize everyone's individual voice using 18th century models in English. Actually, also in this book, Olga is working with a number of other languages like Turkish and Ladino and Ukrainian and Jacob, whatever language he's speaking in, doesn't speak correct Polish or Turkish or Ladino. So that's one end of the spectrum. And then at the other end, there are highly educated scholars and priests and so forth and I want to get I want to get each voice right I want to make sure that they're distinct and I want to make sure that while keeping them in 21st century English there is kind of a trace of their period which is how the book reads in Polish it's very accessible like all of her work but there's a flavor of the 18th century which I really like So what Olga does to show people's different actual languages, so if one of the characters is supposed to be speaking in Turkish, she writing in Polish just says that they're speaking in Turkish. There, she does use as many kind of Turkish borrowings as possible. Supposedly 5% of Polish vocabulary comes from Turkish. And of course, like especially with things like different rugs or different costumes it's easier to find those borrowings she doesn't really replicate accents which I think is a good call I, I'm just going to be looking for similar little clues in English that kind of fill out the atmosphere of the of the original so my relationship with Olga has been close, but we hadn't spent that much time together until we were nominated for the Man Booker International Prize last year. Nonetheless, we were always in touch. Um, you know, Olga is not one to micromanage her translators. She has many translators, and I've um, had the pleasure of meeting a lot of them. We had a panel that we did together a few years ago in Gdańsk um, where the mayor was just recently stabbed on live television. He actually gave the closing remarks at our conference and was a really lovely person and one of the few kind of more progressive politicians in Poland right now. In any case, Olga's translators came to that and we all talked um, at the Opera House about translating Olga and we also were needing to start thinking about strategies for translating the books of Jacob which has been a really wonderful kind of community to have as we do this big book several of the translations have already appeared uh, the Swedish came out first and now the Serbian and the Slovenian have come out and most recently the French the German is almost finished and I'm sure a number of other ones are in progress and probably nearing completion. In any case, we've been more in touch with each other about the specifics. So finding sources for Olga's 
research here or finding mistakes. I mean, this is such an ambitious book that that covers so much territory. So when one of us finds a mistake, we let the other ones know. Olga wants us to let her know too so that in reprintings it can be fixed. Um, it's a really interesting and really kind of strange community. But when Olga finishes a book, she moves on. So she doesn't really have a lot to say, in my experience, about the work that the translators are doing. Like, she's fluent in English. She can very easily read my work. But I don't think she wastes a lot of time kind of wondering about specific words or sentences or anything like that. So while we were in touch over the years, it wasn't that frequent until she won the Nike Prize for the books of Jacob, Ksenki Jakubowa in Polish. When she won that prize, she made a very brief statement on national television in Poland, saying that what she wanted to do with this book was encourage Poles to reconsider their history and to not think of themselves exclusively as a nation of victims and heroes, but to also think of the people that they harmed and enslaved and subjugated, including the Jewish population of Poland. And I remember I was in Buenos Aires and I found out that she won the award. I didn't see her make that seemingly pretty innocuous speech, but I remember going to bed very happy and in the morning, I woke up and my email inbox was just filled with the most vile messages you can imagine, death threats, rape threats, every kind of anti-Semitic slur, but also anti-Ukrainian because her name sounds Ukrainian, Tokarczuk sounds Ukrainian. She was accused of betraying Poland, um, and this was because... I had just talked her into letting me set up her Facebook page in English. She has a Facebook page in Polish that is operated by a friend of hers. And I felt, you know, at this stage in 2014, we still had not managed to sell flights, the book in English. And I felt like we needed to start doing a better job of raising awareness of, of her work in the English speaking world. So she let me set up this page and just weeks later, um, all of these trolls were posting on this page and I was receiving all of these notifications and it was so overwhelming and I really scrambled to try to figure out what to do about it and I got really scared for her safety because she was on book tour and people were posting calls to action and saying like, okay, she's going to be at this bookstore in Wrocław on Tuesday at 6 p.m., let's go. I actually <laughs> invited her and her husband to come to Argentina and stay with me. I suggested that they go to the U.S. for a while. She actually is really resolutely Polish and staying in Poland, and I really admire that about her. She doesn't have to do that, but it's something that she is really committed to, and somebody has to stay and fight, of course. But it was a really frightening six weeks or so, and I I wrote a piece that appeared in LitHub to kind of make people aware of what was happening outside of Poland. And um, eventually it died down, but actually still to this day we're receiving, you know, when we won the Man Booker International, it was mostly really positive feedback from Poles who were really proud that their country was being represented to the world in a positive way, but there were still people who kept posting and emailing. And so that made us closer. And then we ended up spending a solid week together after we won. It was actually Olga and her husband Grzegorz and me and my partner Boris who were kind of traveling around England um, together, which was really lovely. And they happened to get along really well. We were so busy that they ended up kind of being our secretaries, which was really <laughs> great. Like it's a perfect gender role reversal that both Olga and I really loved. Um, and then we were reunited 
in November when when we attended the National Book Awards uh, ceremony together. And then I'll see her in the summer as well. So now we're, in addition to being kind of on the same page with our work, we're also personally much closer. So I have my first book of my own coming out in September, which I'm really excited about. It's something I've been wanting to do for a very long time. And I actually wrote this in 2014 when I was living in Argentina, and I wrote it very quickly in Spanish. So I wrote the whole thing in like a month. And the reason that I did it was to kind of communicate better with my Argentine friends about where I came from and also to be more integrated into the literary scene there. So although I had started a bilingual magazine called the Buenos Aires Review, which allowed me to meet some people, and although I was starting to translate from Spanish as well, I still felt that I was leading a little bit of an isolated life translating from Polish or like writing in English in my home in Buenos Aires, it felt like everything was a little bit too disconnected. So then I would see friends in the evening and and switch to Spanish. And I don't know, it was just a little bit chaotic and confusing. So I wanted to do something to be in Buenos Aires. Um, so I wrote this book, which is called Serpientes y Escaleras in Spanish, which is Snakes and Ladders. But I also was showing it to a very close friend of mine who is also a writer from the United States named Maxine Swan, who was my mentor the whole time that I was in Argentina. And she encouraged me to also be writing an English version. And the versions are very different from one another, but I ended up also kind of feeling like I was finding the right voice for the English. And then really developing the English in the direction of photography too, which is a component that the Spanish doesn't have. So the English version is illustrated with many photographs in color and black and white from my childhood through my earliest travels in Europe through a recent trip that I took to Uzbekistan. So my goal with the photographs in English was to kind of recreate a tension that naturally occurs in the Spanish, which has to do with my language, which was acquired as an adult, but which is simultaneously very specific to Buenos Aires. So it sounds very strange to an Argentine ear to be reading about this girl growing up in Oklahoma using vocabulary that is specifically theirs, but syntax that is recognizably foreign. So I wanted to do something like that with photographs that seemed to be somewhat at odds with what was happening in the prose. So a lot of my book is dedicated to growing up in Tulsa with no traveling. And yet here are these pictures from all over the world. Um, but hopefully they share a spirit and they kind of like gesture towards the eventual destination of, of the narrator or of the character rather. I wrote this book as a novel in Spanish and I then wrote it as a novel in English and the core of the book never changed but I did revise the ending about a million times in English <laughs> and I never felt like it was quite right and I had this kind of thing at the back of my mind that kept saying that what needed to happen to this novel at the end was something a little bit more tragic um, I had several ideas there was kind of like a tragedy being set up in the book that doesn't quite happen and I just couldn't bring myself to do it because I did fictionalize the events of my life and the characters of my life but nonetheless the two main characters in this book are me and my sister. And I didn't want anything bad to happen to my sister more than what already did happen to her as explained in the book. So that was on the one hand. And then on the other hand, when 
my agent submitted it to unnamed press in Los Angeles. The editor responded really enthusiastically, but like every other editor we had submitted to, wanted to know what parts were true and what parts were fiction. And also just kind of had this idea, which I had never thought of before, of maybe just leaning more into the nonfiction side of things and calling it a memoir and rewriting the ending to reflect my actual trajectory professionally. And I liked that idea a lot because it solved the ending thing and it also opened everything up for me so that I could be a little bit more myself and a little bit more ambitious with the reflections in the book on translation, for instance, which I was kind of trying to hold back a little bit when I was making it fiction. So I like that it's called a memoir, but it is still being called a novel in Argentina and it's being considered right now in Poland, for instance, and I was just corresponding with an editor yesterday about what genre it is. And honestly, I don't, it doesn't really matter to me. I think I read novels. So I think that's how I shaped it, the bulk of it. But people can read it however they choose. So definitely a big part of this book is the fact that it was written in Spanish as well. And obviously when translating one's own work, one has a lot more flexibility. And like I say, the versions are really different and I wouldn't even really call either of them a translation, but still I had to pay such careful attention to every word and every sentence. And I mean, another reason why I wrote this in Spanish was to kind of break with what I had been doing during my PhD program. So while I was studying a lot of continental philosophy, for instance, my prose was getting really out of hand and I didn't know how to stop myself and make simpler sentences other than by switching to Spanish where I simply wouldn't have that luxury. And I also chose to write about childhood, which is a period that calls for more directness and I really just kind of stripped things down to the bare minimum and tried to express as much as possible with like a single sentence in a way that I had not been doing as conscientiously in my writing otherwise. So that to me was kind of the defining feature of this book. And it ended up making what... I think I'm the most proud of so far in my own writing. I want to write more in Spanish, but I don't know if I want to do two versions of the same book again because it's so time-consuming. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously just infinitely more work. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. But of course, all of the writers that I've translated have influenced my my style. And actually, I always you know, I minored in college in creative writing, I always thought of translation as a kind of apprenticeship. And I learned from everybody I translated. I also was working on Romina Paola's short novel, August, um, at around this time. And that's the story of a woman in her early 20s whose best friend commits suicide or rather has committed suicide when the book starts and it's kind of the story of her process of mourning which has some thematic resonance with what I wrote in Homesick um, and there was something really appealing about her kind of down-to-earth directness very kind of colloquial which I took some inspiration from and of course from flights as well which has a love of motion but also kind of a questioning of motion and of travel and of that gaze of the traveler and definitely translation has shaped who I am as a writer and this being my first book I do I am finding that I'm feeling very differently about its publication than I have about the publications of my translations although any publication is nerve-wracking for me and we'll see what happens but I don't know because this is a 
creative memoir, I think is what Unnamed Press finally decided to call it. I don't know exactly how to talk about it. It's a little bit boring to go through and say, okay, on page 17, this part happened and this part didn't quite happen in this way. You know, the arc is true and I'm just going to have to figure out how to narrate those events clearly and how to articulate what is most important to me about about this book, and I don't know that yet. So the primary structure of Homesick is a series of vignettes that should resemble Polaroid photographs that are these kinds of bursts of light on scenes that mostly take place between Amy and Zoe, Amy being the older sister who's based on me and Zoe being the younger sister who's based on my actual sister whose name is Anne-Marie. Had I known that this was going to turn out to be a memoir, I think I would have written it really differently. Um, Fidelity is a really curious thing that I've moved away from when I started translating in college, I mentioned that my relationship to translation was really different. I was obsessed with fidelity. I thought that changing anything would be a terrible betrayal of the original text. And I now, you know, many years later, think the opposite. Um, So I don't know how to be faithful to the actual person, Anne-Marie, who's my sister, in creating a work of art about her. I mean, also, Homesick is ultimately a coming-of-age story about Amy, the older sister who becomes a translator. Um, And, of course, that's also partly my trajectory. I'm kind of, on the one hand, rejoicing in these close relationships, which all share certain features. So this intimacy that I mentioned between myself and Olga does share many features with this relationship that I had growing up with my sister and that I still have with my sister, but also kind of turning to focus on what I take from that relationship and make my own. So that is kind of consummated in the act of writing this book, which is much more about me than it is about my sister. And I would love to write another thing that is more about her and more from her perspective Um, she has been reading this book all along and she says she likes it and (laughs) I think she's happy to see pictures of herself in print now. But I mean, she has actually so many more stories to tell or to be told because I don't think she has any interest at all in writing herself. (laughs) So, so it falls to me to do that. Um, but yeah, this book ends early and there's a lot more material there. So I'm just going to read the very first thing that I wrote. Aunque sabe que no le tienen que gustar, a Amy le gustan los tornados. Even though she knows she's not supposed to, Amy looks forward to tornadoes. Even in the day the sky gets black and the streets get empty, the wind pries back the leaves of the silver maple tree and underneath they gleam. When it's a tornado watch, they don't do it. But when it's a tornado warning, the girls go and get inside the pantry, where they squeeze in among the cans and powders and cardboard boxes and wait until one of their parents says they can come out. The pantry is the only place in the whole house that does not have windows. You have to stay away from windows when a tornado comes, because the very thing tornadoes love best is breaking glass. And if that happens, and you're sitting, for example, in the bathtub right below the bathroom window, you will almost inevitably get hurt. When the sirens start, Amy gets them organized. She has developed a system. Each of them is allowed three toys, not more. And Amy is in charge of the flashlight because Zoe might break it. Zoe always dallies over her dolls, feeling guilty for playing favorites. But Amy explains to her how in life you have to make choices. And eventually, Zoe always does although sometimes she tries to hide things in her tiny pants pockets. When she gets caught, she bursts out laughing or into tears, depending on Amy's face. She always gets caught. 
Then Amy quiets Zoe, and they kneel down on the dimpled linoleum, pull the door shut, and wait. Once the door is closed, Zoe's dolls have conversations. Often they discuss the weather. Amy just listens, lets her own dolls rest, feels her sister's hot, quick breaths on her neck. If their electricity isn't out, Amy insists the light be off anyway. Slowly she gets sleepy like she does in the car, and just like when they drive somewhere, Amy, unlike Zoe, would rather just not get there, would rather just keep going, would like it if the warning never expired. Then the pantry door will fly wide open, and all across the top of it, the frying pan and the strainer and all the knives will glint and shiver like they want to fall. And their mother will reach down and grab Zoe, and then she'll carry her away. Preferiría seguir y seguir y seguir, y cuando hay un tornado no quiere que saquen el aviso nunca, porque entonces la puerta de la despensa se abre, y las ollas y los cuchillos colgados sobre sus cabezas en los ganchos de la puerta destellan y tiemblan como si quisieran caerse. Y la mamá se inclina y agarra a Zoe y se la lleva. I feel really different in Argentina. So I feel like I kind of became myself by moving to Buenos Aires. I feel most myself when I am there. My Spanish is in no way perfect. I feel fluency is just when I'm comfortable having a conversation. And I do feel that there. And I love speaking Spanish. I love being there, I feel so connected to the people I know there. And obviously my English is always going to be infinitely better than my Spanish or than any other language. But it is a different feeling. I think that being yourself in a place where you have no history feels to me more powerful. I created everything in Argentina completely from scratch. I went there knowing no Spanish, but I think more importantly, knowing no one. So forging so many connections and really being in charge of what I wanted in my life, which is not something that we have the opportunity to do in the places where we grew up. It just feels right to be there. And in a way, it has things in common with where I grew up in Oklahoma. There's like a very, there's a cowboy thing and the landscape is kind of similar. And then in another way, the city is modeled on Paris and uh, the people are largely Italian. And so there's a combination of Europe and Oklahoma that also felt really comfortable to me by the time I arrived those being the places where I had spent the most time. So I think it's mysterious and probably impossible to fully pinpoint, but that is just the place where I feel the best, I would say, overall. listening to episode 73 of Commonplace with translator and author Jennifer Croft. This is the third episode in our translation series, and I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was edited and mixed by Becca DiGregorio and Katie Fernelius, and produced by myself, Doreen Wang, Christine LaRusso, Nicholas Fuenzalita, and Katie Fernelius. The theme music for our translation series was written and performed by Nathaniel Wolkstein. The rest of the music you heard was performed by Peadora, a contemporary chamber music ensemble that performs Argentinian, Uruguayan tango and folk music and original compositions inspired by that tradition. The ensemble includes Rebecca Wolkstein, Drew Jureka, Robert Horvath, and Joseph Phillips. 
To find more music by Payadora, go to payadora.com or visit commonpodcast.com, where you can find the liner notes to this episode, links to the people and texts Jennifer Croft mentioned in the episode, and a link to become a Commonplace patron. Commonplace has no ads or institutional funding. If you enjoyed this episode, and we hope you did, please consider supporting the show. All Commonplace patrons will receive access to a list of Jennifer Croft's favorite books in translation from the past few years, as well as two tracks of music, La Perdida, The Lost One, an original composition by Rebecca Wokstein that has not yet been released on an album, and Volando, also an original composition by Rebecca Wokstein, and the title track on Peadora's most recent album. Some Commonplace Book Club members will receive Homesick by Jennifer Croft, Flights by Olga Tokarczuk, translated by Jennifer Croft, and August by Romina Paula, translated by Jennifer Croft. Many thanks to Unnamed Press, Riverhead Press, and The Feminist Press for donating copies of these wonderful books. Thank you to Omain Gruich and Justin Todd Smith for transcribing this episode. Thank you to Peadora. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. We appreciate each and every one of you who reviews Commonplace on iTunes and recommends it to friends and students. And you, listener. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.